When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 103 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss any of the big-name guests I've got lined up for you with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every Monday. And you only need to take a quick scroll back to see some of the legendary guests I've had on the show in recent times, including Steve Vai, Joe Bonamassa, Peter Frampton and Jim McCarty from the Yardbirds. And there's many more as well, just to realise the calibre of guests that we get on here. So make sure you go on there and subscribe right now. Well, today's guest is another top guitarist, a Dutchman, who first struck big with his self-titled band in the 80s, scoring hit records and singles in the US before joining David Coverdale and Whitesnake just as the 1987 explosion happened for the band. He spent 13 years with the group, having his own personal ups and downs. I am, of course, talking about the brilliant Adrian Vandenberg. And in this interview, we hear some fun stories from him, going right back to his early band, Teaser. Trying to make it big in Holland when rock was not popular, he shares a fascinating story of how he was close with ACDC and happened to be the one who introduced Angus Young to his wife. We hear about the Vandenberg days, how Coverdale tried to hit on his girlfriend the first time they met. Of course, we hear all about his time in Whitesnake and how he joined and the crazy success as well. He also talks about the accident that left him unable to record the follow-up album to that successful 1987 release and what it was like watching Steve Vai be drafted in to replace him. 
He's got a new record out now with his own band that's done really well on the Dutch charts. I think he got to number two, so plenty of great stories as ever, as you'd expect, from a VRP Rocks interview. Quick word of warning, though. Adrian is obviously Dutch and speaking in a second language, so it's not always the clearest line, but you can still make it out okay. Also, if you're a fan of Whitesnake, then please do check out the recent interviews with Steve Vai, episode 95, Doug Aldrich, episode 102, and Joel Hoekstra on episode 91. They all share stories from their time with David Coverdale and Whitesnake, so they're all well worth a listen. So, here we go. Let's enjoy this, a fun interview with a great guitarist himself, Adrian Vandenberg. Now, I want to take you right back to one of your very early bands, Teaser. Now, I heard a story that promoters used to try and pass you off as bad company. T- tell us all about this. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, we, we played quite a lot on um, uh, American Air Force uh, bases in North Germany. I was 19 or something. I was still in art um, university. I was only 20 or something. Mm-hmm. It was just the four of us, no road crew. You know, we, should, we took our own equipment in the, in the back of a Fort Transit and taking turns over who was who had to sit in between the uh, equipment. Yeah, we used to do that a lot. And then, so um, we played on these American bases. And one time, um, the promoter apparently um, announced us as that company. Now, our singer looked very much like Paul Rogers, and he actually sounded quite a lot like Paul Rogers. And we played quite a lot of that uh, company and free material, but we weren't them, you know, so... We only realized it later on um, when the curtains went open. First of all, there was quite a culture shock because the local promoter made a mistake of which band plays, played on which uh, party because there was one party like the, the big cheeses with, uh, with all the medals and stuff. The other party was for the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So accidentally, they put, they put us on the party with all the, co- the colonels and, and the majors and uh, some like... Stupid wedding band uh, on, on on the other one, so that must have gone down pretty seriously. In our case, you know, and um, it only showed how much uh, people were ready for um, for a party because the, uh, when the curtains opened, people were shocked. They, they they didn't know who was that company anyway, you know, because you know they were the high-ranking officers and stuff. So that was one point for us. The other one was. That um, first, of course, we, we started with uh, Can't Get Enough, the legendary but company hit song. So um, they looked in shock, you know, draw, jaws were hitting the floors and they go, what the fuck is this? A couple of hairy guys, you know, making a lot of noise. But after the first song, we decided, okay, this is what it is. We're going to th- make a party anyway, no matter what happens. So they spent the evening dancing quite awkwardly to, uh, to rock. <laughs> and it, it was a very entertaining sight from the stage, you know, but... They had a great time, and, and we had a, a very unusual experience. So um, those were nights, man. I mean, you, you would start packing your stuff back into the van around 1 o'clock, 1.30, something, drive back for six, seven, eight hours. I was usually just in time to go straight to um, Academy of Arts, where I was um, studying, you know. So I don't think I could do that again now, you know, no. without it, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sort of thing you do when you're young, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned there being a big fan of free and, and things like that. What, who were your inspiration then when you were younger? They were definitely an inspiration. It, it, it started um, with uh, Stevie Winwood when we were still with um, the legendary Spencer David group. Uh, when I heard Give Me Some Loving on the radio, I thought, I got to get that record, you know. And and very soon, uh, Free, that company, Hendrix, Queen, La Zeppelin, uh, the American band Mountain, um, UFO, 
Rainbow, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, uh, mentioned it already, um, Humble Pie, you know, all the, all the British stuff is, is like 98% of my influences. And you can actually call ACDC a British band because um, they were originally from, I, I think, from Scotland, weren't they? And Bond was, Bond, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bond was. I actually spent some time with Bond when um, that band teaser that we just talked about. We were support to ACDC in the last tour that uh, Bond did, I with the L tour. Oh, wow. Which is also where, where I put uh, Angus and a Dutch wife together. Ah, well, there you she go. Was a friend of, yeah, she was in my circle of friends, and uh, I knew her very well. And she uh, she asked me, oh, can you please put me on the guest list? You know, we were playing in, uh, in Nijmegen in, in Holland. I said, yeah, I'm going to try, you know, but we support that. So I don't know if we have a right to do that. And then... Apparently it worked because um, I, t- I told the, the, the bodyguard that they had, and the, the, this huge guy in front of the dressing room, I said, man, uh, with a bit of luck, there's three very tall, blonde that, Dutch girls are going to show up, they're guests of mine, and wouldn't it be kind of fun if you kind of throw them into the dressing room or, or something, you know? I was actually joking, but uh, it, it, it sounded like it did because I heard quite some noise. Um, and I didn't talk to Ellen uh, for a while until she called me up in our um, hangout where we usually saw each other with a circle of friends on, on Friday. And the phone rang um, at some point, and, and the barkeeper, well, pre-mobile phones, barkeeper said, hey, yeah, there's a phone for you. I go, oh, oh mm. I hope my parents are okay, you know, different city. Hey, Adrian, it's Ellen. Yes, where I am. I said, I don't know, you know, I'm in Paris. I go, great, you know, I'm having a holiday. No, I'm with Angus. I go, what? I'm with Angus, and I'm not going to be back for a long time. So that was it. And they got married. And uh, one of their houses is in, in my neighborhood. Uh, well, my neighborhood, about 40 minutes away from where I live in, in Holland. Wow. So they're still together, and it's lovely to see that, you know, because as we know, uh, rock marriages usually never last that long. Indeed, indeed. Well, what was it like being around ACDC at that time? Because they were they were fairly new on the new on the scene, weren't they? And they were blowing up and and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. We had a DJ in Holland uh, called Alfred, <laughs> and he was like a serious rock fan. He had a rock show on Dutch radio, uh, and it was the only rock on Dutch radio. Actually, it was um, two hours. It was called uh, literally translated the the concrete show because concrete, you know. Yeah. So. Um, it was all live rock and uh, great stuff, you know. And he actually, um, man, he got a bunch of great tracks from that era to the number one spot on Dutch radio. Uh, one of them was um, Little Rosie. He played it and he played it and he played it. And, you know, people were susceptible to it because he kept playing it. In, in his two-hour show, sometimes he played it several times. And the same thing he did with uh, Running With The Devil with Van Halen. Wow. Um, with um, a lot of Toto songs. He loved Toto as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, he passed away years ago, uh, Golden Earring, and I jammed um, on his the party to celebrate his life. I knew him very well. He was instrumental in my teaser band because um, when he was a D- the DJ in that um, rock show, it was his show, um, I was studying at the Art Academy in, um, in Arnhem, in Holland, and Somebody told me where I lived, so I took a demo and I, I just rang at the door and I said, "Would you please listen to this?" And he was. I went. I took a demo everywhere to every record company, and they said, "Well, it's rock, you know, rock is not suitable for Holland." 
that people want uh, want to hear that stuff on the radio. And and Alfred actually um, got us a record deal with a label um, of of a guy who dared to sign us, and and things went really well. We played a lot in Germany, Belgium, and Holland for about T seventy seven till um, eighty one, and then I changed it into Vandenberg basically. Absolutely. And then we get to Vandenberg and we talk about people signing you. Phil Carson is a man that I hear a lot about. I spoke to Dee Schneider recently as well and singing his praises and things like that. So so how did you attach, uh, attract the attention of, of Phil? Well, um, my manager at the, at the time uh, was the most famous Dutch rock journalist, uh, Kate Barth. And um, he dated uh, Phil's uh, secretary for a while. <laughs> uh, so... Um, uh, he said, you know what, uh, Case and I, my manager and I, uh, talked about we're going to send demos to everybody and, and, and anybody from labels that we like, that do rock. I sent uh, the demo to Chrysalis because UFO was in Chrysalis. And um, Case said, well, you know, I'll send it to Atlantic because I know somebody over there. So uh, fortunately, um, their date uh, went okay. They, when they split, uh, they didn't have like an ugly one because... Um, she, she made sure that um, it was on Phil's desk together with, uh, like, on top of the pile, so to speak. So Phil listened to it. He called me up right away. Actually, he first called my mom uh, in the middle of the night because he was in America or something. And he wanted to see a show, but we didn't have any show here, shows yet. You know, it was just the first demo. And um, so I hired uh, the local theater in my hometown, and I hired uh, equipment and, and lighting and all the stuff. And invited Phil, but it turned out to be quite a, quite a situation because it was in the middle of the winter. So we got all set up, you know, and all the equipment and stuff and the stage full of, um, of, of marshals and, and stuff that we could loan from other people um, because we didn't have that much ourselves. And so it looked pretty serious. And then, well, no Phil, you know, you're supposed to be around there like, like three o'clock. 3.30, no fill. 4 o'clock, no fill. 4.30, no fill. So the guy started going, oh, it's Adrian again. You know, he always has those stories, you know, uh, ambitions and big plans and this is all. For nothing, you know, I go, guys, you know, I talk to the guy seriously. Okay, okay. Well, exactly at the, the next half hour, uh, there was banging on the door downstairs in the, the theater. It was empty, of course, and we were on the first floor. In a, in, in a smaller part of the theater. And um, so one of the, of the roadie guys who helped us, they were basically friends, they went really roadie. Yeah. But he went down, and it was still at the door, and it appeared, um, there was a, a pack of snow, and um, it appeared, first of all, his, his plane was delayed, of course, because of the snow. And then he, he had to drive all the way to the east part of Holland, which is a two-hour drive. But with that snow, it was a lot longer. and. Of course, you know, he rented the, uh, he got a limo. So the limo didn't, didn't go that fast, you know, so he was way, way late. And well, he came in, I shook everybody's hands and said, Adrian, you know, just, just pretend I'm a huge crowd. So we <laughs> sat in the middle of the theater and we played three or four songs. And he said, well, great. Um, Adrian, um, I'd like you to come with me, uh, to Hilversum and uh, because he had a meeting with, um, the Dutch, um, uh, affiliate of, uh, Yep. WEA, which was Warner Brothers, Electra, and Atlantic. And it was funny because we entered the room and he started cursing at all the Dutch people over there and saying, you 
Tuckers, you loser. This guy is Dutch. I am signing him for the world. You guys didn't even know. Well, yeah, rock doesn't go very well in Holland. Oh, oh yeah, are you, are you sure about that? Because um, um, ACDC and Van Halen are number one hits in the last couple of years, you know? What are you talking about? You suck. I don't know anything. I was embarrassed. I go, oh, shit. Because they were one of the companies where I personally went with a cassette tape. Would you, would you want to listen to that? And you pay for them, you know, to listen. And, and they said, yeah, you know, difficult, you know. Well, kill. It was, it was like a parade of, of about, I would say, at least 10 minutes. And they were like little school boys, you know, caught with their hands and in told off. Yep. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Oh, hilarious. I love that. And then from that point, you, you recorded your first album and you, you managed to do that in uh, Jimmy Page's studio. Man, how was yeah. that? <laughs> that was amazing because that was the first time I met Jimmy. He, uh, one of the times he came down to the studio, he, uh, he came down in a helicopter. So that was oh, pretty wow. impressive. Work. <laughs> <laughs> and to my surprise and shock, he was as tall as I am. Uh, I, I'm almost two meters. And so Jimmy, I always assume because he, he was so skinny, you know, that he was like a like a, a small guy, but that was great, you know, and he, uh, he was enthusiastic about the stuff, and yeah, go on, guys, go on, everything's fine, and one of the nights, the first night, actually, I, I looked around the studio, I wanted to see if I could find the guitar of his and touch it and <laughs> look at his amplifiers and all the yeah. stuff, you know, his legendary kit. So I uh, I found the tape room, and I saw all the 24 tracks of all those legendary uh, Led Zeppelin tracks, even 12 tracks, you know, and like a, a couple of those really big tapes, you know, of uh, Stairway to Heaven. Oh, wow. uh, all those legendary Zeppelin songs. I was in, man, this was like the holy of the holy. Um, so I just was there in total awe. And I guess it inspired me, you know, um, <laughs> working with the, the engineer that, that worked, works with Jimmy as well. So right before us, uh, Bill... Um, Bill was from the sounds. What's his name again? Bill Wyman. Yep. Uh, he, he he just right before us, he finished the solo album, one of the solo albums where he had the hit single and just we saw Rockstar. And the stories are great. The engineer said, "Man, you know, he was a serious womanizer for pretty young girls." You know, they said in the morning. Oh no! In the morning, uh, like a runner had to take. Uh, one girl to the airport and wait for the other one to arrive and take that one back to um, to the studio. And that's how it went every day. So it was a pretty uh, virile, horny bastard, this uh, Bill Wyman guy, man. Jeez. <laughs> wow. But Jimmy, yeah, meeting Jimmy, of course, I met him a couple of times after that over the years in the Whitesnake Times, you know, spent some time with him every once in a while in one at one Tokyo, I remember. But, you know, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan, you know, so I really try to keep my cool yeah. and be like a school, a school kid, you know. <laughs> oh, incredible to meet someone like Jimmy. Absolutely. And um, th that record was a huge success, top 100 in, over in America, uh, huge singles in that. I mean, how did that feel then? You guys coming from the Netherlands, as you said, and rock wasn't the big thing, but you went over to America and you cracked it and you, you're doing these huge things. How did that feel for you guys? Yeah, it was amazing. You know, it, it, uh, everybody can imagine we... The first tour we did was uh, supporting Michael Schenker in, in, in England, yep. which was already great, you know, because we played the legendary Rainbow Theater where, you know, I've got uh, Tim Lizzie Live at the Rainbow, all those bands, you know, Live at the Rainbow. So, oh, fuck, man, it's going to be great. 
So that was already great. And then um, going to the States, uh, the first tour was supporting Aussie. And I never seen venues that big, with like 20,000 people, you know, you go, holy shit. Uh, so that was like a serious adventure. And Burning Heart uh, being a hit, which I never would have thought, because I wrote it pretty quickly, um, because I thought it would be cool to have a ballad on the album, you know. I love ballads uh, with the combination of acoustic and electric, and mm -hmm. um, probably inspired by Jimmy Page, I suppose. Um, thinking about it now, I never really realized that actually it probably is. And and free, of course, the company and you know, all the great stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it was like um, something I would never have imagined, you know, because uh, we had two bands that managed to break out of Holland in all those years, and they were going to hearing with Ray the Love, song everybody knows. It was top five in England, I think. And um, uh, Focus, legendary, one of the first real prog bands. Yes. And they were huge in, in England and, and in the States for three years or something, because clashing of the egos between Jan Ackermann, the phenomenal guitar player, um, every time when I run into uh, Brian May, he asked me, so how is Jan Ackermann doing, you know? And uh, Brian told me, that um, he said, man, you know, when Focus hit the scene in England, all the all the, the top musicians of, of, in England went, went out to look, to check them out, and they were all quite frustrated because Jan Ackerman was way ahead of his time mm -hmm. as a guitar player, as a rock player. And funny thing was that um, a couple of years later, I read an interview with John Bonham, of course, my favorite drummer, whose favorite drummer is a he, but um, uh, and they said, well, you know, everybody considers you the best rock drummer in the world. Is there any drummers that you think, are, you know, that you really like? He said, well, yeah, I like I really appreciate Pierre van der Linden from the band Focus. So, hey, Brian May, John Bonham, things could be worse. So those bands bro broke out of Holland before Vandenberg, and that's, that's it, you know. After us, there's one band who does pretty well, I think, uh, with Intentation, which is more of a prog band with a female singer. Uh, I think they do pretty well. But um, personally, to be honest, I don't really consider that the kind of rock that we're talking about now, you know, like poor guys making mm -hmm. serious noise on the stage because you have so many, those kind of bands have so many backing tracks going on with choirs and violins and God knows what, you know, that whenever I see one of those bands, I don't know if if they're actually playing on stage, you know, because you hear so many things, you go, whoa, where's that from? You know, you're here, <laughs> you have 10 people singing and there's two people by a microphone. So it's quite, it's a little weird. It is very weird. And that's kind of the hot topic at the moment as well, isn't it? Whether people are playing live or not. I mean, what's your take on that? The whole kind of music being played off tape while performing live? Well, uh, to a certain extent, I, um, when it's done um, in, in a pure, purest way, I can kind of um, see the, the use of it. Uh, I, I don't agree with bands that have like all these backing vocals and, and and, and all these layers of keyboards and, and even the guitars and bass and drums, you know. I've seen bands that are really popular in Holland pretty much have 90% on, on tape, or on, on, on hard disk. And at one of the festivals, the most popular band at the time, uh, like about four or five years ago here in Holland, um, there were two teenage girls standing in front of me and I, I heard them talk to each other. Wow, they sound just like the record. I couldn't resist <laughs> Tipping them on a shoulder, I go, what you're hearing is the record. 
no, no, because they're on stage. I go, yeah. So there are a few bands that are like a four-piece, like Extreme, for instance. They have like a minimal touch of a keyboard here and there. And and I talk, I know you know, you know, and, and we talk about it because um, and he, he said, yeah, you know, we have in, in, in three or four songs, we have a touch of keyboard on the record. He says, in order to do that live, you were, you would bring a keyboard guy and tell him, you know, don't do anything uh, in, in about 60% of the record uh, of the repertoire and come out for those uh, three songs, you know? So in the case like that, I can, I, I can totally imagine it. I can Makes work sense. On, it's not bad, especially when you play the part yourself, which is what I did, you know? Then it's basically an extension of what you do. And I remember in the seventies, um, electric light orchestra did it because they only had like three or four people on stage playing a string instrument. Yeah. But live, you're at a, a complete orchestra. So they got caught with a real tape recorder backstage and the promoter didn't want to pay him. He said, man, this is not live. I'm paying you for a live band. So it was, um, was a lawsuit and all the crap, you know? So, yeah. Absolutely. Following Vandenberg's third album, things have kind of gone a bit off the boil, haven't they, for the band? And David Coverdale had approached you a couple of times previously to join Whitesnake, and you, you, it hadn't been the right time for you. So so when had he approached you before, and, and why wasn't it quite right at that point for you? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Uh, the very first time was um, the first Vandenberg album wasn't even released, I think. Okay. Um, so I assume you're the demo at uh, Phil Carson's office. Um and um, it was Utrecht, and then uh, he invited me to come to the show in Utrecht. And uh, backstage, you know, he said, "So, uh, uh, how about joining Whitesnake?" And at the same time, we tried to uh, to charm my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> and she said, "Who is the man?" I said, "No, it's Crocodile. He's like one of the most greatest singers ever, you know." But I couldn't do it. I told the man, you know, just recorded my fifth album. On, on, I, I can't let Sean Carson down. I can't let the guys down. I can't do it. No, I, I would love to. So we stayed in touch. And um, uh, he, he asked me again uh, when they had Line Dunnington in uh, 1983 mm-hmm. that I was recording the second album in Jimmy Page's studio. I was in a crowd. So um, that was, uh, I said, man, you know, <laughs> bad timing again. Let's stay in touch. You know, sooner or later, the right timing is going to 
Kamar, and the end of '86, uh, when I got invited by um, John Kalodnik to come to the States to talk about a new contract for Vandenberg, but he wanted to put a new lineup together in LA with top class musicians because he didn't like the rest of the lineup. And he said, Well, I got another proposition for you. Well, I would really like to to John Whitesnake. And I said, Oh, it sounds familiar. <laughs> and then uh, they said, You know, please give me one or two days to think about it because it didn't involve just me, but also the people who were crushing me. You know, I'm a management guy, guys in the band. And I, um, he said, Well, while you're here, you know, would you mind uh, making a new guitar arrangement and play a solo? And here I go again because. He didn't like the version that John Sykes did at the time. He described it as um, a heavy metal band playing a country western song. So it was pretty funny. But um, so I did. And um, then I thought, man, I'm never going to find a singer of David Caliber, of course, you know. So I thought this is the right time. So I joined. Incredible. And you talk about the right time in there and you joined just for that kind of whole explosion of that 1987 album. I mean, they were, they were they were huge here in Europe already. I mean, David Coverdale, it was, it was bluesy yeah. rock and huge across Europe and things like that. But the 1987 album really catapulted Whitesnake into the stratosphere in America, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It was unbelievable. You know, I, was, I had to pinch my arm every morning uh, to make sure that, that, that it was real. Um, and I was ready for it, you know. We toured the uh, United States twice with Van- Vandenberg. Uh, first time as uh, a special guest to Aussie, the second time special guest to Kiss. So I had played those venues already. And but you know, with a band like Whitesnake, with David singing my, you know, one of my all-time favorite uh, vocalists, and Tommy Overtz and Rudy Sarzo, who I met, Tommy was playing uh, with Aussie when we were supporting. And uh, when we started headlining in the tour, um, Rudy was supporting us with Quiet Riot. So I knew Rudy and Tommy already. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Vivian, I met him once and thought he was a great player, you know. So um, we got him great. The, the vibe in the band was great, you know. I mean, play that to sold out arena and stadiums every night, and you know, I can't beat it. So yeah, it was an amazing time. And um, for me, it lasted 30 years up, up to 1999. So it was fantastic. Yeah, and then you helped to write uh, all the songs on the follow-up album, didn't you? The Slip of the Tongue, but uh, you didn't yeah. actually get to play on the record because of injury. So what happened there? Yeah, I had a wrist injury, and uh, at the time, nobody could figure out uh, what happened. I mean, initially it looked like I was doing exercises with my wrist to keep them loose. The, I bought a little book that had um, exercises for piano players because uh, my wrist started feeling a little stiff every once in a while. And I assumed it was because of practicing too much or something. Um, years later, I found out it was the result of a car crash I was involved in in 1981 mm-hmm. or 82. And I was hit by a car from the back. So I, I developed a whiplash. I had um, a lot of pain in my neck for about, about three, four weeks. And then the pain kind of went away. But um, in in nineteen nine in nineteen eighty nine and then no, no, let's see nineteen ninety nine, um, I found out that I went uh, one more time to uh, to uh, a newer surgeon and he said, "Man, were you ever involved in a, in a car accident or any other accident?" I said, "No, I don't think so. I forgot about it, you know." Um, because um, he showed me um, like an uh, an, an X ray. He said, you have two neck hernias who press against the nerve 
that um, kind of steer your index finger in your thumb. So making all the slick little movements and at the same time all the, the pick in place, yeah, uh, that, that had become the problem. So um, I had two operations in uh, in the United States removing those neck hernias, but it never really came back. So I, over the years, I developed um, uh, different techniques. Actually, the last two years, basically. Um, so I, I started doing that about six years ago, slowly but surely changing between my pick and using my nails as a pick. Oh, yeah. And right now, I basically only play with my nails. Ah. And I get, I'm, get, I'm getting away with it because I, I play what I feel, so it's fine, you know? Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, that must have been kind of hugely frustrating for being part of that band and, and coming up with the songs, but not actually being able to record at that point. It was. It really was, and it really took, it took a while, especially when I heard Steve's parts, and he's an amazing player, as we all know, uh, but it suddenly sounded so different than how I, how yeah. I heard it in my head. It took, it took a while to get used to it, and uh, at the same time, I thought, man, I couldn't play. So how great is it that the people, the, the, the guy of Steve's caliber plays my songs, you know? So I gave a positive twist to the whole frustration, and then I was ready to play right on time to join the tour. And after getting treatment for like six, seven months in Holland. And then every once in a while on the, on that tour, uh, once or twice a week, I made sure I went to a physical therapist to, you know, to make sure that, um, my shoulders were still loose enough because all those mu- muscles were really tense because of the accident still. And your, your body also uh, develops a different way of coping with it. Like for instance, when somebody breaks their leg. Yeah, the other leg takes over yeah. much of the of the of the, the pressure. In my case, after that uh, injury, um, for between eighty one and basically eighty nine, um, my body gets used to put too much pressure on my right hand arm because your brain thinks I gotta get it, I gotta do it, I gotta do it. You know, so um, I got used to the, to. to too, too much tension in the arm, so I really have to focus over the years to let it go, you know, keep it in the leg and all that shit, so I'm still here, and they're not going to get rid of me uh, very easily. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. And just quickly touching on David, I mean, you've mentioned him a few times, he, he's a huge star, he's got a great voice, a big personality, but but what was he like to, to work with then? It was great. Um, uh, we hit it off right away um, when I was in LA for those uh, recording and for the talks about joining Whitesnake. And we stayed in touch and uh, on the phone, whatever. But so since I joined, uh, we became very good friends up to this day. We still are. Um, we see each other. Um, sometimes it's like two years in between and sometimes it's quicker, you know. But then I'm definitely going to see him this year. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it was it was uh, surreal, the first, especially the first show, but first show because one of my favorite vocalists you know building out night after night i mean every night he was singing like on the records you know it was amazing no wonder you know the, his voice um uh, got quite uh quite some yeah over the years of course you know you wear it down a little bit so yeah david gave uh, always gave it all so no wonder his voice uh you know is worn down a little bit but he still got it you know i mean david put so much soul into his singing that it always translates, you know, whether it, whether it's not as high pitched as it was in the 80s, 
who cares, you know? I mean, Frank Sinatra and Elvis sang, and sang all, all the way through the last day, Bon Scott did, all those guys did, you know? And so did David, only David's style is very demanding, especially since the 87 album, because before that, you know, he sang more, more bluesy. He didn't do yeah. the, the screaming that much, uh, unless in, for instance, um, Slow and Easy, you know, he went a little bit more into that direction. <clears throat> but um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it was great. And playing with heroes like um, like Tommy Aldrich, legendary, you know, Rudy mm-hmm. Sarjo became one of my all-time best friends. And um, Vivian, you know, from his stint there in, in, in Dio, you know, it was great. Every night was fantastic. Brilliant stuff, so, brilliant stuff. Yeah, quite some, uh, quite some um, experience. Indeed, indeed. And you worked with the band for many years, as you said. There was Restless Heart as well in 97. And you released music with Vandenberg and Moon Kings and things like that. And that kind of brings us to, to now, because Hot Off The Press, brand new release, the, the recent album from Vandenberg, Sin. So what can fans expect uh, from it if they've not heard it yet? Uh, if they know the 2020 album, I went one notch up. Uh, in the in the words of uh, Nigel Tufnell from Final Tap, <laughs> I went to eleven. Went to eleven. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's absolutely heavier. It sounds much. It sounds like like how we sound live, basically. You know, you hear really loud guitars, big sounds, really thundering drums, and much of amazing vocals. I mean, you know, in the states when we when we play the white snake stuff with our eyes involved in, I, I saw several jaws hitting the floor because. You know, when we play Still of the Night or Here We Go Again, you know, much has an amazing job. <clears throat> and he, he has his own style, you know. Coverdale, obviously, was one of his influences, but so is Lord Plant and Ronnie Dio, you know, like any singer of his generation. So um, it's just great to play those, those songs because, like I said, I'm also a fan, you know. So when we play the stuff that, that I played for 13 years or 12 years with White Snake, it's great to be able to play them again, you know. It, it's 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 like one of the most well the most the most important period of my career as a musician because it was top of what you can achieve I suppose you know. Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. We look forward to uh, listening to the music and, and seeing you back out on the road as well. That'd be fantastic. Man, me too. I, I can't wait because that's what what I want to do. You know, being on the road. I I, I like recording for about two weeks and then I get fed up with it. I want to get on the road. I want to make noise. I want to see the smiling faces of the people and I want to see the, all the fists, the fists up in the air, you know? So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, I can't wait to hit Scotland, really, man. Excellent. It's, um, I, I hope we... we uh, well, actually, yeah, we were going to do one or two Scottish gigs. Well, I hope so. Uh, everybody who listen, please come down, you know, let's, like, let's rock, rock our brains out and um, everything will be good in the world. Absolutely. Brilliant. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Adrian. Thank you so much. Same here, man. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. There you go. The brilliant Adrian Vandenberg there. Please do check out his new album, Sin. It's a fantastic record. Rocking hard indeed. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And if you're a fan of Whitesnake, remember to check out the past interviews I've done with likes of Steve Vai, Doug Aldridge and Joel Hoekstra, all sharing stories from their time in the band as well. 
But that's it for me and this week's VRP Rocks. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app so you get all the episodes. Loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come over the next few weeks. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on the podcast app that you use. It makes a big, big difference. It really does. And check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well. Loads of brilliant videos for you to enjoy in the community tab as well, where I post a new poll every single day. Brilliant stuff for classic rock fans. A big thanks to you for interacting as always each week whether it's on social media or by email i try to get back to every single person that reaches out to me so a big thank you so until next week's episode then take care